Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for your faithfulness to us. Throughout every generation, from your people of old to your people today, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your faithfulness to your word and to your promises, a faithfulness that is steady as a rock, as great as the ocean. God, we praise you and thank you for your greatest act of faithfulness in providing for us the, the hope and the inheritance of eternal life. a portion of your kingdom to dwell with you forever through your son Jesus. Lord, thank you for your mercy and grace towards us in forgiving and saving sinners. Thank you, Lord, for your word which reveals to us not only your instructions but it reveals to us your promises Father, we thank you and praise you that you are faithful and true to your promises. Help us as we open your book up that your spirit would help us to uh, grow in in faith and confidence in what your word says and that our lives would reflect a faith in the promises that you've made us in Christ Jesus. Be our teacher now, we pray. Guide us into your truth. Speak to your people today. Lord, in this room, we know there are many needs, many aches, many, uh, many sorrows, and many needs. And we pray that your word would go forth and, and minister to each one according to your purposes, and that you would provide for them what they need to hear from you today. Feed us from your word now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning again, brothers and sisters. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 36 is what we'll be. And again, I send a warm welcome to our guest today, all the way from Arkansas. Uh, Little Rock, maybe? It's Minnesota. I don't know where that is, but welcome. Thank you. Uh, uh, I only know one church out there, but I'm sure there are many other faithful churches out there. So good to have you on a Sunday morning. Visiting beautiful San Francisco. Welcome. Anyways, uh, Numbers 36, and if you happen to notice, Numbers 36 is the last and final chapter in, uh, in this book, Numbers, that we have been studying for the last uh, year and a half or so, and we're finally at its end, and I'm, uh, I'm excited uh, to, um, to uh, finish up. Uh, maybe some of you are wondering where we're going to head in the next few uh, weeks and months, where, where, where I preach next, and over the next two weeks, I'm going to preach out of uh, Psalms, I'm going to choose a couple of Psalms. Psalm 106, I believe, is what I'm touching on next week. And then I'm thinking about probably preaching from Psalm 19 after that. And then beginning um, in December is our Christmas season. So uh, I think a lot of our pastors, different pastors, um, are going to be preaching, I believe. And, but I'm going to start, intro- start our book of, uh, the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to start studying that. And that seems like to be a good natural segue from our book of Numbers, where we've been studying the law, kind of all this... Uh, all this foreshadowing uh, of Jesus and what's kind of foreshadowed, what's sort of uh, in the imagery of Numbers and the in the uh, and all the rituals of Numbers is more explicitly stated in Hebrews. So we can just uh, more clearly preach Christ and every week and we can do that. I hope that'll be a joy for us as we um, 
uh, handle Hebrews. Um, so try to read that if you can in the next few uh, weeks and before we get to Hebrews chapter 1 in December. All right, Numbers chapter 36. Is <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, Numbers 36, as you, if you've ever read this chapter, Numbers 36, is it, when you read it, it, it is somewhat of an anticlimactic ending uh, to this book. It's, uh, it's not what we kind of maybe expect out of books. We're too used to uh, movies and, and uh, books and stuff like that. It, it, it sort of doesn't end with a great battle, you know. It doesn't uh, end with anything where they actually enter the promised land and defeat somebody. Or it doesn't end with, a, you know, some great, you know, uh, happily ever after uh, story. But it ends with an, kind of an unusual event. Um, Events, or it comes. It regards the a concern that the sons of Israel have regarding the inheritance of the daughters of Zelophehad, and and I know you all remember that wonderful chapter in Numbers twenty-seven, and uh, one of your favorite ones, I'm sure. Uh, Numbers twenty-seven, the daughters of Zelophehad came, and they asked because their father had no sons, and they asked for that inheritance, and so that uh, God, God in response, gave them the inheritance, and then because of that. Which you know, which which show God's graciousness and and faithfulness. It there's there's now a question regarding the law of how that land that of, that was given to the daughters of Zelophehad would be inherited in the future. In and if you ever read, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, your you know, those uh, money websites. I, I like to read uh, sometimes Money Watch. You know, this chapter sort of reminds me of those you know those articles on estate planning. You know, how do I make sure that my land is passed on to my children and my children's children, etc.? It has that kind of seal to it, at least from my modern ears. Yet this chapter, in its context, is not a, a chapter about estate planning, okay? It's not about estate planning, but it is, surprisingly, as we study this, and we all walk through it, it's surprisingly a, a chapter about faithfulness, faithfulness. In a way, the ending of Numbers is like a big to be continued. When you get to the end of Numbers, you realize, wow, there, there's more to this story that needs to be told. And I know if you know your Bibles, you know that that story is told in, the, if you will, the, the next part, Deuteronomy. And really, that it doesn't even tell the whole tale. It has to go, we need to go all the way to Joshua for the completion of the story. So it's like a trilogy, you know? If throw in Exodus, that's like the prequel. Well, in Genesis, the prequel, Exodus. It's four-part, you know. So anyways, this real exciting story of how God's people have been wandering through the wilderness. We've looked at that. We've seen how God has been faithful to them. God has watched over them. And yet Israel, throughout their wandering in the wilderness, has been unfaithful to the Lord. But yet, after 40 years of wandering, they are now in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan River, opposite Jericho. They, they see the promised land. It, it's within reach, within grasp. They're waiting upon the Lord. And the book ends with this last and final question about the inheritance of something that is still not theirs yet. But it's an inheritance that's over there. It's inheritance that God has promised to give them. And they want to know, how can we preserve that which God has given us? That's their question today. There is still uncertainty. There is still peril. There is a, a task that is left unfinished. And the, un- number, book of, the ending of Numbers focuses on this 
task unfinished for the people of God, that, event, that necessity to enter into, to possess the inheritance that God promised to the people of Israel. And Israel's question then that they bring about their inheritance is as significant as our own questions would be about our, our inheritance from the Lord. I know in our present days and in the church, we, we don't tend to talk about our inheritance. I think when I say that, I think most of you would probably have a good guess of what is our inheritance as Christians, I hope. Our inheritance as Christians is the justification by faith that is found through Jesus Christ. That is, uh, that is this, this salvation that we have. That's, that's the ultimate fulfillment of the blessing of Abraham, the blessing that God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. And we have a, this blessing, this inheritance that, according to Peter, is that which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. This inheritance that we are heirs of is an inheritance of eternal life through justification by faith. That's, that's the inheritance. That's your inheritance. That's mine as believers in Jesus. And to the extent, then, that we understand and remember our inheritance ought to directly impact and be reflected in how we live our days and years ahead. And if we forget about our inheritance, or if we more likely just take for granted our inheritance, then it will reflect in how we live. We'll live for ourselves. We'll forget that we're sojourners and tenants. And we'll think that we're somehow citizens and owners of this temporary passing world. Our passage today encourages God's people to faithfulness by remembering their inheritance from him. That's what this passage does. And so if you have your Bibles, Numbers 36, we're going to be. And uh, as Israel's waiting there across at this point of, uh, in the plains of Joab, by the Jordan across Jericho, they're given a choice. The one in, in, this, uh, in their question, they are forced again once more to make a choice. Will they choose to be faithful to God or not? And that this generation, we see from this chapter, Numbers 36, the second generation of Israel chooses faithfulness. So as an outline today, we're going to look at the story. This is a pretty brief passage, 13 verses. I'll read it within the context of the sermon. But we're going to look at three ways that Israel is preserving of their inheritance. It's this question about their, the daughters of the had inheritance. The way they desire to preserve it, three ways that inspires God's people to faithfulness, that inspires us today to faithfulness. So let's begin first by noting our first point, number one, in this passage, the concern for preserving their inheritance. There's a concern for preserving their inheritance that's expressed in verses 1 to 4. Let's look at 36, 1 to 4, and we read this. And the heads of the father's households, of the family of the sons of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the heads of the father's households, of the sons of Israel. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land by lot to the sons of Israel as an inheritance. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. But if they marry one of the sons of the other tribes of the sons of Israel, 
their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of our fathers and will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong. Thus it will be withdrawn from our allotted inheritance. When the jubilee of the sons of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong. So their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. So the concern is raised here by the Israelite tribe of Manasseh. It is, uh, he is one of the sons of Joseph, you recall, uh, who, um, because he has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they are, God takes them to be uh, sons of Jacob, and they're treated as uh, the sons of Jacob, though technically they're the grandsons of Jacob, but nevertheless they have become one of the, the tribe, 12 tribes. And they... Their leaders bring their concern directly to Moses and to the leaders of the other tribes. And so, and naturally, this probably would have taken place around the tent of meeting. That's normally where the leaders would gather to discuss. So this was a significant uh, matter to the, to the sons of Manasseh. This was an uh, a inter-tribal matter that would impact the whole nation if it does not get resolved. Verse 2 is where they set up the, the concern uh, and where they set it up by reminding and uh, reviewing that uh, two commands that the Lord God had made. So these are two commands that God had made. First of all, they remind, they, they bring their point, that God had commanded that the land be given to the sons of Israel as an inheritance, right? That God promised to give to the sons of Israel the promised land as an inheritance. So we've looked at this many times. You can't help, by the way, as you just read the, or as we read the passage, the key word, the repeated word all throughout this chapter is this word, inheritance. It's sometimes translated as possession. No other, in fact, no other chapter in the Old Testament has as many instances of this word inheritance as Numbers 36 does. It appears 17 times in all in this very single chapter, um, more than any other chapter in the Bible. You recall that the word inheritance refers to basically God's gift of a permanent possession for every son of Israel. It was the part of the land that he had promised. He said every son of Israel would have a part in this land. It would be a permanent possession for them. It would be, as long as they lived on earth, it would belong to them and they would be handed down from one generation to the next, always remaining within the family, within the tribe. It was a possession that could never be lost by the tribe, could never be lost by the family. Even if due to circumstances one had to sell their land, they were so poor. They really, technically, they weren't selling, but they were renting the land. For in the year of Jubilee, that 50th year, after seven years of, uh, seven cycles of seven years, 49 years, on that 50th year of Jubilee, all land that was sold or rented to other people would return to the original owner. And in this way, God made sure that their inheritance was a permanent one. It was a possession. They could not lose it. That's how significant this possession was that God, get, what God, that what God had promised of the land of Canaan to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be theirs forever. For we know elsewhere, for instance, Romans eleven twenty nine, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What God gives, you cannot lose. It's not like He takes it back. Ah, oh, just kidding. God gives it, and He gives it. It's irrevocable. And this is important for us to grasp. God didn't just promise all the land of Canaan to Israel, which he did, in a sense. It's a big, he promised Israel the land of Canaan. But he, what he did is, does is he actually promised to each tribe 
a very specific lot of land. It was determined by lot, right? They would, so they, they would buy lot, receive a, a particular part of land, and then further down from within the tribe, they would further determine by lot what each family, each clan would receive as their inheritance. So down to the, even, the implication is down to the very family, to the very son of Israel, that they would have a specific lot of land that was given to them from the Lord, and it would be their permanent possession as long as they lived on earth. This determination by Lot would uh, be fulfilled in the book of Joshua, in Joshua uh, 17, 18, and 19, around there. And so, already here, we see that every Israelite family, even though they had not received that land yet, every family accepted it by faith, God's promise of this land. It was, a, it was an act of faith to believe that they have this inheritance. And so it was significant that they now bring their concern about this inheritance that God had promised to them. And so we see that first command, that first command or understand that first command, that God had promised an inheritance, a permanent possession for every son of Israel. There's a second command that's raised in verse 2. And the second command is that God had commanded to Moses, basically, to make sure that the inheritance of one named Zelophehad, who was a grandson of Gilead, who was eventually a descendant of the tribe of Manasseh, this Zelophehad, that his inheritance, because he had no sons, was to be given to his daughters. And it's very interesting, always, wherever we see this reference to Zelophehad, we see his daughters mentioned, and mentioned by, specifically by name, which is really neat. You, know, you just don't see that in those scriptures too much. But somehow these daughters, they, they stand out. And the daughters of Zelophehad, like the sons of Gilead here, it had, remember back in Numbers 27, had approached Moses and expressed how their father had died without sons. And they, by faith, asked of Moses and really asked of the Lord that could they inherit the land? Could they be, normally, the inheritance was passed on from father to son, a male heir. But here these daughters asked by faith and God rewarded their faith. They, God, in fact, the Lord gave an answer to them in Numbers 27, 7. You remember this? The daughters of Zelophehad, had this response from the Lord, are right in their statements. God commends them. He affirms them. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Eventually, this became, it wasn't just a, one, a one-off kind of rule, but this became what's known as a, a statutory ordinance. It became a law in the land of the land of Israel. Then whenever a man died without sons and he had daughters, his inheritance would be inherited by his daughters. That was a significant change in, in that age. And so these were the two commands. One, God had promised, God had commanded that there be an inheritance given to the sons of Israel. And secondly, there's a command that, but the inheritance of Zelophehad, a man who died without sons, his inheritance will be given to their daughters. So these are both, these both were God's commands. They were both accepted by faith by the people of God. But the specific problem we see is then raised in verse 3 as a result of these two commands. Verse 3. <coughs> they bring their concern, and there they say, if the daughters of Zelophehad marry someone, a man from the other tribes, not from the tribe of Manasseh, then their inheritance would be added to another tribe. For in Israelite culture, when a woman marries a man, she becomes a part of his family. 
He's the head of the family. He starts, he's, he's the head of the household. And, he, and she there naturally joins not only his family, but joins his tribe. And, but if she does that, and they bring in their inheritance, they inherit their, their tribe, their father's land, then when she joins her family and she brings that which she possesses to, uh, to her, into her marriage, that land that belonged to the tribe of Manasseh would become part of someone else's tribe. And verse 4 talks, talks about there's this great awareness of the, the year of Jubilee and how the land is a permanent, that even God ordains that the year of Jubilee, it would, the land could return to the original owners. But even the year of Jubilee, they point out, would not be able to resolve the problem. It would still, because it wasn't sold, the land wasn't sold, the land wasn't uh, rented out, but the land was inherited by the daughters. And so it would naturally belong to them, and wherever they go, it would belong to them and to their descendants. And so this was the concern. It was a matter it was a matter of, a, of a, the potential for a tribe to lose a portion of its inheritance that God had promised to them. Inheritance that was supposed to be permanent for the people of God, for the tribe, and to the very individual families. The concern that was raised really a matter of faith. They believed God's promise. They believed that God had given them this eternal possession for their tribe. And they did not want to lose what God had promised just as much as you and I would not want to lose the promise that God has given to each of us. So in faith, they brought the concern to Moses and ultimately to the Lord himself. We're seeing here in this, the, what the sons of Gilead here uh, do, the sons of Manasseh do here, is that they are ex- revealing that this, as a part of the second generation of Israel, this is further evidence that this is a generation of faith, a generation of faith in God, the promises of God mattered to them. It wasn't something, well, you know, it's, it's okay. It's, you know, no big deal. The fact that they were given inheritance mattered to them and they wanted to preserve the inheritance that God had given them. And so a natural question for the people of God today is whether the promises of God matter to us. God has given us promises. God has given us a promise particularly of inheritance. But do... Do we care about what God has promised to us? Or do we just kind of think, well, yeah, it's, it's, I, got, it's I know we got it somewhere. It's in my pocket somewhere. I think I, uh, you know, it, it's, it's somewhere in, that's in the Bible. Do we think about what God has promised? Are we aware of what God has promised? Sometimes uh, I'm afraid when we attend a Bible teaching church, we just simply assume we hear what the preacher says up here, and we say, "Oh, we just take that for granted. Oh, that's great." But then we come, we we don't think about it, we don't meditate upon it, and so when we leave these doors, we forget whatever promises of God might have been proclaimed from this pulpit. What is God's promise to you? How do you know God's promise to you? Can you point to a chapter and verse of, of God's word that says, that's God's promise. I'm going to hold on to God's promise. I know for many of us, if you're a long-time Christian, you've learned, I hope, to, to hold on to God's promise. That's why we memorize Scripture, because Scripture reminds us of God's promises. And we hold these promises dearly to us, because they are a treasure to us, especially in times where there are, where are our inheritance is threatened to be lost.
And if there was something that threatened its loss, as it does here for these Israelites, would you be concerned about it? Would you do anything about it? You know, our next sermon service is going to be from the book of Hebrews, as I've told you. And in Hebrews, chapter, all throughout Hebrews, there's all these warnings. But in Hebrews 10, 26, 27, I want to read for you this warning. It says this, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's just an example. It's an example of a, of a potential threat to our inheritance. If you are going on sinfully, sinning willfully, after having received the knowledge of the truth, the gospel, there's a warning here that there's no longer, as if, as if the sacrifice is no longer applies to you. In fact, what you can expect is that you can expect judgment if you continue going on sinning willfully. You can shout, oh, I know, God, you know, the you know, eternal security of the saints, one saved always saves, the perseverance, all that good stuff, and that's all true. But yet the word of God is true. If you go on sinning willfully after having received the knowledge of truth, you can expect judgment. We'll get to saying, if you don't know how that works out, well, it's because it reflects that generally you, you probably never had salvation to begin with. But so if you're living the Christian life, you have the promise, you know, you know I prayed a prayer, I know that I believe in Jesus and I, I'm going to get it, I'm going to say it, but then you go on sinning willfully, that's, that should be a big warning sign for you. That's, that's a red light flashing. It says, you know, that's a threat to your inheritance. So that, I need to do something to stop that. If I'm living in sin, unrepentant sin, I know we all sin, okay? There's not, not, not a single one of us that don't have sin. We all have sin. But if we go on living with unrepentant sin, willful sin, there's a warning. There's a threat to that inheritance. What are we going to do about that? Are we going to do something to stop that? Are we going to make changes? Are we going to live differently because there's a threat to our inheritance? Or do we just keep going and living our life? If the promise of salvation matters to you, then, then let us not continue sinning. Salvation is a gift by grace through faith. It is. But a, a genuine concern for the inheritance of eternal life ought to reflect in how you and I live here today. Well, we'll move on. We ought to have a concern for our inheritance. Third, uh, secondly, the concern for preserving their inheritance leads to our second point, and that's our, the instruction for preserving their inheritance. The instruction. God gives instruction. He answers their, their request in verses 5 through 9. We read this in verse 5 through 9. Then Moses commanded the sons of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the sons of Joseph are right in their statements. That sounds familiar. This is what the Lord has commanded concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, let them marry whom they wish, only they must marry within the family of the tribe of their father. Thus no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe, for the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Every daughter who comes into possession of an inheritance of any tribe of the sons of Israel shall be wife to one of the family of the tribe of her father, so that the sons of Israel each may possess the inheritance of his fathers. Thus no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another tribe, for the tribes of the sons of Israel shall each hold to his own inheritance. 
Presumably here, Moses is able to answer because he sought the Lord. He says, he, in fact, he commands him according to the word of the Lord. He, he went to the tent, into the tent of meeting and he received an answer from the Lord. And he comes back to the sons of Israel to give his answer. And just like the request of the daughters of Zelophehad that we saw back in Numbers 27, God here answers in, with the same affirmation from that, uh, of the sons of Gilead and the sons of Manasseh that brought their concern. That they are right in their statements. God says, you're right. That's true. Your, your understanding of the, of the promises are correct. And their evaluation of the concern is accurate. And so God provides then a solution, an answer, an instruction for them to resolve the conflict. In order to resolve the conflict, the daughters of Zelophehad are instructed then to marry whomever they wish, but only within their father's tribe. And by marrying someone in the tribe of Manasseh, the inheritance would remain in the tribe. Because uh, once they, you know, that, that just makes sense. They, they marry Manassehite, they would, their inheritance would remain in that, the tribe of Manasseh. The instruction is then further stated as an ordinance. This also becomes an ordinance, just like the rule for the, daughter, uh, for the inheritance of those who die without sons. This becomes a rule too, so that if the daughters inherit uh, from their fathers because their father had no sons, then they, were, they could choose to marry whoever they wish, but they always had to marry someone within their tribe. So that, for the purpose of, very important, three times it's mentioned here, so that the, basically they would retain their inheritance. Notice that the, the reasons, the repetition in verse 7. It says, <clears throat> For the sons, so that the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. In verse 8, the sons of Israel each may possess the inheritance of, of his fathers. Verse 9, the tribes of the sons of Israel shall each hold to his own inheritance. See, God affirms, he, he emphasizes three times that it's important, he does, gives this provision, this answer, this instruction, because it's so that the sons of Israel may hold on to, may preserve, may possess, may not lose their inheritance. It's that important to God that he would require of the daughters of Lovahad of this, with this instruction. God affirms the concern of the sons of Manasseh to preserve their inheritance, and he thus gives this instruction. He doesn't want them to just casually say, well, you know, it still stays within the nation. You know, that's, it's, that's good, right? At least it's still an Israelite who possesses it. But for God, it matters. If he gave the land to the tribe of Manasseh, he wants it to belong and forever to the tribe of Manasseh. It's, he wants to preserve the, the, these, uh, this, the distinction, the, the gifts that he gave to one is whom it should belong to. The land should not, these, uh, the inheritance should not be treated casually. It should not be treated without concern. It's, when we think about it, we think of Esau, who didn't really care for his birthright and sold it for a bowl of stew, remember? His birthright, which was really his inheritance as firstborn son. And a lot too, too many people, and some of us maybe, might treat our inheritance like a, like simply like a get out of jail card in Monopoly, you know? You get a get-out-of-jail card in Monopoly. Does anybody play Monopoly anymore? Anyways. But, you know, get-out-of-jail card, it's good to have, right? But, you know, 
in the meantime, it's, real, it's really worth it. Now you kind of slip it under. You kind of put it aside. You don't think about it. But, oh, it's, it's nice to have when, when, it's time you t- when it's time to go to jail. You say, oh, I got my get-out-of-jail card. Oh, that's great. But for the rest of the, the, rest of the game, you know, you're totally ignoring it. It's just kind of sitting there on the side. That's sometimes how we think about our inheritance, our eternal life. It's like, oh, it's, it, I got my get-out-of-jail card. I'm, I'm good. And I, when that time comes, when I die and I stand before Christ, the judgment, I, I'm like, oh, here it is. But that's not how we should think about the inheritance, a gift from God, a promise from God. We should want to hold on to it. It should be a treasure. It should be something that we possess. It's more important than get out of jail card. If you, if you think about if you equate it to our inheritance, it should be more important than all the money on the board, all the properties we can own, is that get out of jail card. Because that is the one that matters. That's the one that when the end of, with the end of our life, that's really what sets us free. And in fact, it's for all of life. It is our hope and promise that changes how we live. Do we hold on to, do we possess our inheritance from God as the treasure that it is? Do we eagerly long to possess it? You know, if we don't think about our, our get-out-of-jail card, we don't think that that's what matters in the end, then we're just going to live for this world. That's what we do. We all do. I, I sometimes fall in that trap as well. I just live for, for what the next accomplishment is. I live for the next maybe promotion or job. I live for the next thing and possession I, I might purchase for the next trip and experience that I may, I may gain. And those are all fine, but those are all temporary and passing. And that's not what we should be living for. We should be living for the, the hope of one day going and being into the presence of God. That inheritance is, is our possession through, in, through faith in Jesus Christ. And if so, if we long to, then do we make sure that we, fall, we seek out God's instructions regarding this inheritance? In Acts chapter 20, verse 32, God, <coughs> God is, uh, uses Paul, and as he, the Apostle Paul, as he speaks to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he says these, and Paul, as he's saying farewell to them, says these words to them. And now I commend, to you, commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul is really clear. He says, I'm not going to be around anymore with you, so I'm going to commend you and trust you to God. I'm going to trust you and commend you, God and his word, the word of his grace. Because it's God and his word is that which will build you up. It's God's word that gives you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. God's word ensures your inheritance that is given to you. And so we should make sure that we're people who are, who are concerned about the inheritance. The inheritance. These instructions are available to any who wish to find it. Uh, let me read Ephesians 1, 13, 14. In him, you, Jesus that is, you also, after listening to the message of faith, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of glory. This, this verse, 113 to 14, tells us how do you possess God's inheritance? How does God's word give you the inheritance? After you listen to the message of faith, you listen to the gospel of your salvation, and having also believed in the strategy. So this is how you can make sure. If you're here, you don't know how you can gain and possess the inheritance of eternal life that is reserved in heaven, it's through hearing the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for our sins 
and rose from the grave on the third day. That's the essence of the gospel. He died for you. And if you believe in him, you put your trust in him, you, you will be saved. You will have the inheritance. And what's more, it says the seal of your inheritance, the, the, sort of the proof of your inheritance, that which guarantees how you know that you have inheritance. How do you know? Well, it's the seal of the Holy Spirit. It's because you have that imprint, you know, that seal that, that, uh, that's imprinted on your life. That when you see, oh, that's that, that seal, oh, that has the seal of, that's the whole seal of the Holy Spirit. That, that shows that you have the inheritance. And I'll ask you, brother, sister, how do you know you have the seal of the Holy Spirit? Where do you find that out? Well, oh, yeah, well, I just had an ecstatic experience. That's not, that, that, you may have had an ecstatic experience, but that's not the Holy Spirit. How do you know you have the Holy Spirit? If you don't know, you'll find it in God's word. But if you don't know, I commend to you Galatians chapter 5. That's a good place to start to know whether you have the Holy Spirit or not. But if you don't care about your inheritance, then you don't care about the seal of the Holy Spirit. You don't care whether you actually have it or not. You may think, oh, I just got to get out of jail cards right over here. You don't care about the instructions to make sure that you possess the inheritance. How do you know you possess it? A lot of people say they believe, but do they really in their heart believe? Have they truly trusted in Christ? How do you know you have truly trusted in Christ? Well, the seal of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, that's going to be manifest in your life. The danger for any of us, as those who sit in, in the pews or the chairs of a church that preaches the Bible week in and week out is that we all at times take the word of God for granted. We, we, we borrow the faith of the man who sits, stands in this pulpit and preaches with, you know, sometimes with, with vigor and sometimes with, with soberness and so, sobriety. And you think his faith is your faith. My faith is not your faith. Your faith is your faith. My faith is my own. And so that what you need to do is that you need to make sure you have faith in the Word of God. That you, when you hear the Word of God, it's great that I say it and proclaim it. But do you go home? Do you think about these words? Do you meditate upon these truths and hold on to them? If we take the promise of God for granted, we remain nominal Christians. Christians in name only. We don't give attention to what God desires of our lives. We don't care about the instructions of the Lord. We don't pay much attention to Him. It's just, you know, somewhere in there, there's a promise that if I believe in Jesus, uh, I'll be saved. But how do we know you, you've truly believed in Jesus? So you've got to look to the instructions. They look to, we live for our lives. We, we end up living our lives for ourselves instead of for God. But men and women of faith in Christ are going to be people who seek to understand and follow God's instructions. And so we see then this example in our third and final point in verses 10 to 13 the faithfulness for preserving their inheritance. The faithfulness for preserving their inheritance. This is in verses 10 through 13. Let's read. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so the daughters of Zelophehad did. Mala, Terza, Hagla, Milcah, and Noah. The daughters of Zelophehad married their uncle's sons. They married those from the families of the sons of Manasseh, the son of Joseph and their inheritance remained with the tribe of the family of their father. These are the commandments and the ordinances which the Lord commanded to the sons of Israel through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. So we see 
Plainly, just as the Lord commanded, so the daughters of Zelophehad did. They obeyed God's instructions. These were women of faith. They believed God. They trusted in God. If God said this was the instruction, they followed him faithfully. Not only did they ask of God to possess their father's inheritance, but they also willingly followed God's instructions to preserve their father's inheritance. It mattered that much to them. They trusted in God. So in obedience, they they married men from their tribe, the tribe of Manasseh. And again, we see their names mentioned. Mala, Terza, Hagla, Milka, Noah. Four times in the Old Testament, their names are listed. It's just... You don't learn much more about them, but here we see them. They're constantly mentioned because, why? Because they had faith to inherit, to ask of the Lord for an inheritance. God gives an inheritance to all who ask, really. And here they are, they ask, and because they, they possessed inheritance, and uh, they were, their names are mentioned in the scriptures. And as a result of their obedience, their faithfulness, their inheritance was preserved for the tri- with the tribe of their father. I think, but in modern years, as we read this passage, it's like, oh, I can't believe they did that. You know, right? I don't know about you, but that's what I, that's my initial response when I read that. What? They married the cousins? What? Is that legal? You know, okay, you know, well, it was in those days. You know, it was probably illegal still in our days, I believe. But, but nevertheless, it's sort of unusual. And maybe they might not have literally married their, their, their cousin. They could have, but it seemed like they could have, any of their, um, their father's kind of extended relatives could have been considered uncles, uh, but their uncle's sons. So they married people within their tribe, but nevertheless. But the fact is, we see that these women of God were willing to restrict themselves in whom they could marry. They could marry anyone, but they restricted themselves to just the tribe of Manasseh. It was an act of submission on their part. It was a, an act of faith. I'm sure many of us today would not like to be told who we can marry and not marry, right? Oh, you can't marry that people, those people. You can't marry that kind of person. No, who are you going to tell me who I can't marry or can't marry? And of course, the world has taken, uh, taken a, basically a, a do what is right in their own eyes kind of approach to marriage and life, and we see the corruption of marriage of that as a result in our world. But for the people of God, for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus Christ, we do what is right, not in our own eyes, but we must do what is right in God's eyes. And when it comes to marriage, God doesn't tell us which tribe to marry, okay, thankfully. He gives us freedom to choose whoever we wish. But yet, at the same time, he does give us guidelines and instructions for whom we can or cannot marry. There is a restriction. You can marry whomever you wish, but you are not to marry an unbeliever, right? And we gather this from passages such as 2 Corinthians 6.14, where Paul writes, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Do not be unequally yoked with them. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, and what fellowship has light with darkness? If you don't like that, for Corinthians uh, 7.39 is another one. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And this is really just a continuation of God's instructions, even when he gave, that he gave to Israel. When they entered the promised land, they were not to marry the people within that land. Why? Because those people in the land were evil, idol worshipers. And if they marry people who do not worship the Lord, particularly this, these idol worshipers among them, 
in the land of Canaan, they would inevitably follow the way of those idol worshipers. And they would fall away from the Lord. And that's, sadly, that's what happened to a good number of the Israelites who chose to do that. And sadly, the same, that same principle is at work even among Christians. We know, we've all, you live long enough, you will all know Christians who marry, choose to marry an unbeliever. And there, yes, every once in a while you get that great story, oh, well, you should marry the unbeliever and the husband or the wife came to know the Lord. Praise God. Yeah, praise God for that. That God accomplishes his good even in despite our sin. But no matter how we try to justify it, there's no way around the fact that when you marry an unbeliever, you are marrying someone who is not heading in the same direction as you are. You are marrying someone who does not have the same values as you do. You are marrying someone who is not living for the same person as you do. Unless you're not. Much like the Israelites intermarriage with the neighboring Midianites and Canaanites, the Israelites eventually began to forsake the Lord when they did. And when you choose to compromise in the most important area of marriage, then you're going to be more likely to compromise in the lesser areas of life when it suits you. And that's just, that is the practically what often happens. But faithfulness to God, faithfulness to God's instructions is what marks these daughters of Zelophehad. Because of their obedience, they preserved their inheritance as was promised. And the last and final verse of the book, of the chapter, is a summary of the whole second section of Numbers. From Numbers 25, God has been giving instructions to the people of Israel on the cusp of the promised land. There in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, opposite Jericho. God has given them all these commandments, all these ordinances, which God commanded them through Moses. And they've heard and they responded. And having received these instructions, the choice was Israel's to make. God had given them instructions for war. God had given them instructions for worship. God had given them instructions for the way of life in the promised land. Will the second generation of Israel be faithful? If they are like the sons of Gilead, if they're like the daughters of Zelophehad, they're going to be a generation that is a faithful generation, a faithful people of God. Because in their minds, the inheritance that God promised to them was worth trusting and following him. We as the people of God today, we are not Israel, but we are like them wandering pilgrims in this world. And our eyes, like them, ought not to be upon this world, its treasures and its pleasures, but our eyes ought to be upon the greatest treasure of all, our inheritance of life eternal in God's kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. And until we get there, we must endure, we must be faithful to do his will. I'll leave you uh, with one more uh, quote from Hebrews. Um, My mind is there in that book already. It says this, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive that, what was promised. Where the life, the Christian life needs, requires endurance, faithfulness, to do, strive to do God's will, not to earn our salvation, but it is a reflection of, of a genuine faith in God's promises, that in the end, we will receive what was promised. Let's wrap it up. In conclusion then, the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, the second generation of Israel, brought a concern about uh, preserving their inheritance. 
And the Lord answered with his instruction through Moses, to which the daughters of Zilpah had faithfully obeyed. The inheritance from the Lord is preserved by God's word through the faithfulness of God's people. And every future generation of God's people would look back to this generation, there in Numbers 36. And they would see the importance of holding on to the promises of God for their inheritance. And may this generation, may our generation, continue to do the same. May we be faithful to follow God's instructions. For God is faithful to keep his promises. To bring us through this wilderness of life into the inheritance which is ours in Christ Jesus. And if we're not faithful, well, God remains faithful still. Praise God. And that which he has promised, he will bring to pass in his perfect time. Three questions I know for your small group discussions and uh, reflection during the week, individual, is how often do you think about your inheritance in Christ? How does that reflect in your life? Uh, That's that's two questions, oh well. Uh, Question number two is, what instructions from God do you find difficult to follow? If God gave you instructions like he gave the dogs a little bit, as he has, what what do you find difficult to follow? Because that may may be a threat and hindering a really um, a reflection of you that you don't care about the inheritance. And what has the book of Numbers taught you? Just kind of, that'd be a great way to just end the book of Numbers. What are some of the lessons the Lord has taught you through this book to increase your faith in him? For God is faithful. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of Numbers. Thank you that in the wandering of Israel through the wilderness, we've seen your faithfulness to your people. And certainly, Lord, you've given them all that they need not necessarily all that they wanted, but Lord, you provided their food, you gave them drink, you gave them protection, you gave them your presence. And you gave them the hope of inheritance of a promised land. You led them all throughout the way as they trusted you. Lord, we pray that as long as we live here on earth, and as long as we're still wandering here as pilgrims, sojourners, tenants, really. Lord, may you cause us to put our trust in you, our faithful God. And Lord, we help us to seek after you, seek after your instructions, seek to follow them, seek to seek to do your will, seek to endure in this journey. Looking not for the things of this world, but looking to the hope of the inheritance that we have of life eternal in your kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. God, we praise you and thank you for uh, this book. And we, we ask you that you continue to shape this church, mold us into the people you wish us to be so that we would be a light to the world around us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.